The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone. Uh, a very, very warm welcome to the Parents Live Financial News Edition. My name is Bilal Jafar, and I am Hedge Fund Correspondent at Financial News. Today, we do have a very, very interesting topic to discuss, and that's about the future of hedge funds. And we do have someone who has been a part of this industry for the last two decades. Uh, he was heading uh, Ray Dalio's investment team, and now he has his own hedge fund ETF called Unlimited. Please welcome Bob Elliott. Bob, how are you? Hey, thanks so much for having me. Really uh, happy to be here. We're glad to have you, Bob. Um, and without further delay, I mean, we do have limited time, but a lot to discuss about the hedge fund industry. So where do you think the hedge fund industry stands as of now? Well, I think we've we've gone through a, a process of, you know, a period of relatively lean years is the reality uh, for many hedge funds um, where it's been challenging to deliver performance, frankly, that is um, anywhere near what you could do just being, you know, long stocks and that was it, right? And I think um, through that time, uh, there's been, I think, the start of a rationalization of the economic value of hedge funds, where you've started to see a little bit in terms of the fees coming down relative to the to the alpha being generated. But that process is a slow-moving process, and I think we're well on our way from over the course of the next five or ten years, feeling the effects of the lean times around uh, seeing fee compression and really uh, the amount that that people are willing to pay in terms of fees relative to the alpha that's being generated is going to come down meaningfully over the next five or 10 years. And what that means is a lot of marginal funds today are likely not going to continue to persist. I think that's happening at a time when actually the opportunities for alpha are finally starting to shift after 15 years of, you know, unbridled monetary stimulation uh, the alpha opportunities that were in the market were relatively modest in comparison to, say, pre-GFC dynamics. As we've entered this tighter monetary environment, that actually creates more market volatility, more opportunities for alpha. And frankly, uh, the better opportunity to outperform traditional 60-40 year stocks. And so I think we're really in an interesting time where I think investors are likely to see lower fees. Uh, per unit of alpha than they've ever seen before at a time when the opportunities are uh, improving relative to what they've experienced over the last 10 or 15 years. And you talked about global financial crisis and what happened in the last two decades. When we talk about the hedge fund fee, uh, what are your thoughts on 2 and 20 fee structure that the hedge fund industry has seen in the last few decades? Well, I think the main question with that fee structure is whether or not um, the the fees justify or the alpha justifies the fees. And so let me just give a simple example. If you're talking about, uh, you know, a 10% returning fund that's taking two and 20, uh, and then if you think even further about a taxable investor, let's just say in the U.S., what that looks like is a 10% gross fee 
that or gross return that the hedge fund is providing, taking off 400 basis points, give or take, in terms of fees. So the hedge fund's already getting 40% of the fees of the overall returns. And then the government, at least in the US case, is probably taking for a taxable investor taking about 50%. And so now we're talking about the taxable investor taking home net of fees, net of taxes, 3% on that 10% return. It's like everyone's getting paid but the investor, right? And I think that's the basic question that's going to come for many folks who are invested in these funds, which is they're going to look at those fees. And even as a baseline, managers taking 40% of the returns in fees doesn't make sense when there are uh, lots of other opportunities out there. So my guess is, is we're going to see a world where the two in 20 starts to become, you know, really closer to one in 10 or even lower, which creates a much better balance for the investor to put their money on the line for the hedge fund, uh, for a hedge fund investment. Because if you think about it, if you can get, you know, let's say we're talking about 150 basis points all in or 100 or 150 basis points all in on alpha, well, that circumstance against a 10% gross return is a much more compelling outcome and on par with stocks over the long term than is a situation where you're looking at something like 400 basis points of fees. When you talk about these new fees being introduced by the hedge funds, do you think, as you already mentioned, is justified? Yeah, well, I, I think I think the, the you know the idea really comes out of the alpha, right? And and over time, when you look at what hedge funds are able to do in, in, in aggregate, a diversified portfolio of hedge funds gives you returns on par with stocks or better, uh, you know, better than stocks at about half the volatility and about a third of the drawdowns, half the monthly volatility and a third of the drawdowns. That's a pretty good return stream that someone would want in their portfolio, right? And the way the hedge funds do that is in general, what they're doing, again, in aggregate, a diversified portfolio of them is you know, preserving capital during challenging market environments and then uh, delivering re positive returns um, during other market environments. And so you put that sort of thing together and that's a pretty good return stream that let's say you're comparing it to like a 60-40 is actually something you definitely want in your portfolio. The problem is, is that that return stream, you know, that return stream gross of fees definitely makes a lot of sense at 100 basis points of fees, which obviously is still a lot higher than what you'd pay for the S&P 500 or, you know, 60-40, makes a lot of sense. The real issue is, as you start to get to 200, 300, 400 basis points across fund managers, that's where it starts to really uh, deteriorate the alpha and where it starts to shift from making a lot of sense to be included into a portfolio versus not. So it's all, it's not about the strategies, it's about the fees and where the fees net out is what is going to determine whether or not it makes sense to include the alpha in your portfolio. And how this high fee will impact the inflow of new investors in the coming years and decades? Well, I, I think um, the, the reality is I think we're going to have a pretty pretty big rationalization of the market. Now, first of all, the hedge fund market's $5 trillion in assets, right? So, I mean, it's a huge market, right? Huge market, 3,000 funds, $5 trillion of assets. The reality is probably at least half of that AUM and half of those managers aren't worth the fees that are being paid. And those managers, as there is fee compression, will die. And the overall industry is going to move towards higher quality managers, lower cost, better net of fees alpha for the, for the investor in those products. And so I think 
that's kind of where we're going is to a smaller but much better industry for the investor in these funds. And that's going to, you know, that's going to be challenging for a lot of investors. You know, there's a lot of funds that, you know, are marginal at two and 20 fees, right? Because of the infrastructure and the costs and things like that relative to the fees that they're earning. Um, but, you know, the, the alpha isn't good enough to, to earn those fees. And so I think for those, those are going to die. And for even the biggest, most sophisticated funds, it's, you know, the question is, has almost never been, how do these funds operate more efficiently? Right. It's been about how do you generate good returns, but not about how to efficiently execute or create the alpha. And so I think for the for over the next five or 10 years, as this fee compression really starts to hit home relative to the alpha, funds are really going to start asking that question. How do I more efficiently generate alpha? The, the days of the highly paid PM, uh, you know, lots of highly paid PMs is, are probably fading. And what's more likely to happen is a much greater reliance on technology uh, and uh, and to to increase a lot of efficiencies in these funds where there's, you know, in, when you're still getting, where you're still earning your two and 20, you don't have to create the efficiency. Um, when the fees come down, efficiency is going to be a real priority for most of these businesses. You mentioned about portfolio managers. We will definitely discuss in details in a little part of our discussion. But you said that investors are still paying high fees. Why do you think investors are still paying that much fee? Do you think the industry is running out of options? Do you think they don't have enough options as of now in the market? Yeah, well, I, I think it's a real, um, the promise, I'd say there's a promise. There's a promise um, or a search that many allocators have, which is the search to find the next great asset manager. And that means that, um, and, and there's a, there's a lot of incentives for the asset managers themselves to promise how they're going to deliver being the next great asset manager, right? Deliver those double digit plus returns with, you know, low cost. And I think the, re the, the outcome of that is that allocators keep chasing to try and find that hit, which over time they keep sort of failing relative, you know, because the funds themselves are not, uh, the idea that you're going to have uh, you know, a, a two sharp ratio, double digit returning, you know, drawdowns no bigger than 5% kind of fund like that, that doesn't exist, right? So everyone's hoping for something that doesn't exist and they keep chasing the promise of it and being willing to pay high fees for the promise of it because it's totally right. If you could find a, uh, you know, a, a double digit returning, two sharp ratio, essentially no drawdown fund. Yeah, of course you should pay two and 20 for it. But the reality is those funds don't exist in, in the wild because their alpha gets decayed away. And so what ends up happening is people are just paying too much in fees relative to the actual, let's call it sustainable alpha that can produce, be produced, which is just much lower than the hoped for alpha that's out there. And so that mismatch is what's creating this constant incentive uh, that people are chasing. And you said that people are chasing promises. When do you expect them to actually realize that the promise that they are chasing is, is not there anymore? Well, I think when you talk to, uh, it's interesting, when you talk to people who've been in this business as an allocator for a long time, they know the reality, right? They know the reality that, um, you know, alpha, two sharp ratio alphas don't exist. I mean, for, you know, at size over time and things like that. They know 
that that's the, the circumstance. And so I think in a lot of ways, um, I think what folks are stuck with, the, the, the sticking point here is that they don't see a lot, they don't see a clear path to be able to get um, low alpha, low fee alpha. Like that's kind of the thing. They, they know that it's valuable. They know that it's beneficial for a portfolio. And so then the question is, how do they get there? And I think actually some institutional managers, when I say institutional, I mean, some of the biggest institutional managers are actually solve this problem. If you go look at, let's say, some of the biggest sovereign wealth funds that publicly report their holdings, what do they do? Well, what they do is they invest in like 50 managers and they have such size and scale that they beat them down on fees. They essentially create diversified portfolios of managers at 100 basis point fees instead of two and 20, right? And that actually works really well because the alpha at 100 basis point fee or 150 basis point fee is worth it in the portfolio and not in the other. And so I think that's probably where we're going um, is that path that has actually been quite well uh, identified by the biggest, you know, most sophisticated sovereign wealth funds and stuff like that in order to start to get these these return streams back to a level that is um, that makes sense for investors. And before we proceed further, a kind reminder to our audience, if you have any questions, please feel free to send. Uh, so yeah, talking about portfolio managers, Bob, uh, these multi-strategy hedge funds are offering like multi-million dollar packages to portfolio managers. Do you think in, in current circumstances, does it make any sense to pay, for example, $100 million, $120 million to your start portfolio managers? Well, I think... Um... Uh, I, I think those multi-managers, I think the, the, the big question, and I think it goes to the, the hope, the promise, right? Let's take, you know, we don't have to name any names, but let's say, take, some, take a multi-manager that's been around for a while that has had at much lower AUM pretty good returns uh, with, you know, net of fees returns with good, you know, with low correlations to the market. Now, what, what inevitably happens in that? is that people see that return stream and then they want access to that return. Because if you can get access to, you know, a mid, you know, 1.5 sharp ratio net of fees, you know, double digit returning, low correlation strategy, like that is, an, that is a great strategy. You, you want that all day in your portfolio, right? And so what ends up happening is money flows into those funds. But the challenge, and and when those get, those funds get a pile of money, it's I mean it's just like private equity. Money flows into private equity. What do they do? They do whatever deals they can do at whatever valuations exist, right? Because they're all incentivized to deploy the capital. The same thing is mostly true in these multi-manager funds who are getting this flood of capital, and they're like, heck, I gotta, you know, what am I going to tell people? Like, no, stuff it. I'm not going to take your money, right? That that's against their economic incentives. And so what they do is they have to take that money and then bid people out. And because they have the track record that they have at much lower AUM, they have the ability to say, well, why don't I charge very high fees because there's so much demand for my product, take those very high fees and essentially translate them to the star PMs, give them a lot of money to get onto the field. And from the manager's perspective, they're basically buying an option value. If the person, the PM who comes on is good, great. They get all the you know they get a bunch of upside on on putting them in the portfolio. If they suck, the man you know the investors paid for it. They haven't paid for it. The investors paid for it. And so it creates this misalignment of incentives. And so I think what you're seeing is actually like 
the flow of capital creating much higher effective fees for the investor, which is a lot worse for them. At the same time, the flow of capital actually weakens the alpha, right? The manager who has delivered a 1.5 sharp ratio or two sharp ratio on fees that are one tenth what they are today or one one hundredth what they are today is not going to deliver the same returns, the same alpha, because those sorts of alphas don't exist at scale. And so what you see here is you see this um, flood of capital, expensive capital, it by its nature creates a, de a degradation of the alpha into a worse product, higher fees, worse product. It's it's a bad outcome for, for investors. And do you think, uh, I mean, this trend will continue in the future uh, that packages of hundreds and millions of dollars? I mean, it, it just, I mean, it really depends on what, um, it really depends on what sort of alpha and unique alpha that they're able to generate. I think, um, I think the real question is going to be like, look, I hear package of, you know, hundred million dollar, uh, payments. And I think to myself, okay, well, what, you know, what can you get for, you know, how much of that hundred, that hundred million dollar value can you get for, and pay for paying $2 million, right. Or $3 million, right. And in particular, people are going to start to sit there and say, well, how does, you know, how can I basically engineer alphas that are, you know, maybe they're not 100% as good as that $100 million PM, but if they're 80% as good and a tenth the price, well, now, now you're talking about something that from a, from an investor's perspective, it's a lot better deal, right? Is instead of chasing, uh, in, instead of chasing the top uh, and paying all the fees associated with it, chase something that's close right but much lower cost and so i think that's kind of where we're going to go is that that rationalization the the idea that you have to have the the very best person is is fading away relative to the idea that you have to have a good deal in terms of what you're do what you're adding to the portfolio and a trend that we have seen recently is that the new hedge fund launches a prop Secondly, hedge funds are finding it really, really difficult to raise capital as well. Do you think this market is only for big hedge funds now because new hedge funds find it really, really difficult to make a name for themselves? Yeah, well, I do, I do think, I mean, I, I know, I mean, I, I, what I'm doing is mostly in the, in the um, you know, more retail side of things, but uh, I certainly know uh, some, some friends of mine who have done some startup funds, and I think um, it is challenging. Uh, and there's a reason why, you know, a lot of people, um, I mean, it is challenging because it's always been challenging, right? Except during like the real heyday of hedge funds back, you know, pre-financial crisis, it's always hard to raise money unless you have, you know, the right combination of things. I, I, I think it's why in some ways the, the move to the multi-manager in part is also driven by, um, is, is driven by the managers themselves, right? The, the managers themselves are saying, well, do I want to go through the hassle of dealing with all this stuff? Or do I just want to like, run, you know, build my strategy and run my book? And sure, I'm not going to get all the economics out of it, but I'm going to get a lot of, you know, I'm going to get decent economics out of it. And so let me go to the multi-manager side. I think on the other side, you know, for, for whatever institutional reasons, from an allocator's perspective, like you just go back to this classic question of like, does anyone ever get fired for investing in one of the big multi-managers, one of them global macro shops that have been around for 40 years? Like, e even if the returns are kind of okay or worse than okay, like, 
from an allocator's perspective, are they going to get fired for it? And I think the answer, you know, the answer is no. And so that conservatism sort of leads the conservatism and the challenge of raising sort of leads everyone into these pod shops. But the challenge with that is that as the pod shops grow, particularly the story of like the the um, the alpha decay that occurs at size is nonlinear. And so what ends up happening is that they start to uh, depreciate. They're actually worse than all the individual traders trading independently because they're trading together on one book. It starts to, the, the larger size starts to create decay. And the decay means that what product is actually out there for the everyday, you know, for the investors is actually worse than if they went out and invested in all the little guys together. So let's talk about the microeconomy a little bit. Do you think that we are ever going to get back to the normal interest rate and inflation? Or do you think the entire definition of normal has changed? Yeah, well, I mean, it's been, you know, I think we've, we've had a situation, uh, you know, I would, I would emphasize like the last 15 years up until really um, the beginning of 2022 was, you know, the most extraordinary monetary stimulation uh, by central banks in the history, you know, in, in like modern financial history. Um, and so, and that was to basically counteract the greatest debt bust in a century, um, arguably, you know, in modern history as well. And so I, I think, you know, that process, I think there's a lot of folks who sort of think of that, that have grown up essentially in their professional careers, particularly, you know, where that has been the only macroeconomic dynamic that's been at play. And, you know, that's changing. A lot of the things that were, you know, the fundamental reasons why we needed extraordinary monetary stimulation for an extended period of time, a lot of that has been resolved through the passing of time, the repairing of balance sheets, the reduction of debt, all of those things. So those sorts of elements are gone. And at the same time, a lot of the things that enabled it, which is a secular disinflationary environment, which meant that central banks didn't have to pursue particularly tight monetary policy. A lot of that is also behind us as well. Um, and so we're seeing a situation where uh, there's increasingly, um, you know, increasingly a shift away from disinflationary pressures to inflationary pressures, which was creating an environment of a shift away from extraordinary monetary stimulation to normalization, as you might say, in interest rates over time. And a macroeconomic reality that doesn't require anywhere near the level of stimulation that we saw before. And you put all that together, and odds are the next 10 or 15 years are going to look a lot different than they than the last 15 years and really the last 40 years. And under the current macroeconomic conditions, where are the opportunities first for hedge funds and secondly for investors? Yeah, well, I think when we when you know a, a big part of what we do sort of as my day job is uh, developing technology that looks over the shoulder of how hedge fund managers are positioned. And then we take that understanding, we package it to a variety of different products, an institutional product and a, and a retail product. And um, I think the thing that we see with, with hedge fund managers today is that um, there's a lot of uncertainty in terms of exactly how this is going to break. And I think that's, that's important to recognize that that this level, you know, essentially hedge fund managers in aggregate in terms of like their strength of positioning is about as low as it's been in 25 years at a time when volatility has been, realized volatility has been pretty low relative to the last 25 years. That's a pretty unusual circumstance. That circumstance though is not that unusual in 
the scope of late cycloeconomic conditions. And it's actually what you see if you look at hedge fund managers through time, like the quality of alphas is lower in this particular moment, in this moment of cyclical conditions, because there is so much uncertainty, like ask the question, how much does the Fed have to tighten in order to bring inflation durably down to 2%? The answer to that question is hard to know, right? I mean, the Fed doesn't know, right? The Fed doesn't have any idea how much they have to have to tighten in order to get there. Um, you know, we're learning through time, but it's not clear that there's a, an obvious break in one direction or another where um, where hedge funds can start to take real advantage of the meaningful dislocations in, in prices. And so I think from their perspective, it's basically stay conservative in order to, to then be well prepared in order to see the opportunities that emerge, whether it's, you know, we're tilting into recession or we're tilting into an inflationary environment and move agilely into those dynamics when they become more apparent, but don't move ahead of those things becoming clear. And so it's interesting if you look over the last 18 months, like since January, 2022, um, you know, there's only three assets that have been asset classes, depending on how you think about it, that have been up over that time frame: hedge funds, commodities, and gold. Okay, those are the only three things that are up. So they're up a little bit, but your hedge funds are up a little bit. But like that gives you a sense they're up. And what have stocks and bonds done? I mean, something up and down. Bonds are down fifty percent on the long end. Stocks have been up and down and up and down and up. <laughs> you know, it's been a lot of volatility. Hedge funds are doing what they're supposed to be doing, which is is generating moderately good returns with low volatility over time. And so I think that's you know the way that they're doing that is by packaging it. You know, basically taking not too much risk and sort of seeing some tactical opportunities through time. And if you take a step back as an overall investor, you know, the real opportunity here is to start to think carefully about um, what is what is a good diversified portfolio. As we're entering an environment that looks like you know, the last 40 years, the portfolios that have worked well over the last 40 years are unlikely to be the portfolios that will work well over the next five to 10 years. And so... I think the big opportunity for the sort of strategic investor is to think about where can you build diversification? And really, there's three areas that you can create meaningful diversification in a portfolio. Everyone talks about stocks and bonds, private equity, venture capital, and all the spooky things related to that. And the reality is that those don't move the needle in terms of improving the quality of the risk return profile in your portfolio. What moves the needle on those are three things. One is commodities, one is gold, and the last one which is important, sort of ties to this overall conversation, is diversified or balanced alpha at low cost. Those are the three assets that are the opportunities. And so I think investors really have a great opportunity to bring those into their portfolio if they can do it. Gold and commodities are relatively straightforward. Balanced alpha at low cost is a little more challenging, but there are increasingly opportunities to get those in place in order to add those to the portfolio and help put them in a better position to weather what is likely to be a very different environment than they've seen you know, over most of their careers. And you earlier talked about technology. What's the role of artificial intelligence when we talk about the hedge fund space and the overall investment management sector? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I like to talk about artificial technology just in the context. Of, I mean, I've been a systematic investor for 20 years, right? And so... Um, the world is sort of waking up to artificial intelligence as if it's you know something radically new when the reality is you know um, maybe you know large language models in this particular form are relatively new but the reality is the tooling let's say 
the tools available for the asset manager have been evolving you know, over the last 20 years and will continue to evolve in the future. And so the way that I think about this is things like artificial intelligence, and, and you know, that's a huge description. There's a lot of things under that ranging, you know, from machine learning to large language models, et cetera. That's just adding to the toolkit available to the manager. And that toolkit available to the manager, what it requires is that the manager and the uh, has to think about which tools are most effective in um, in applying to the to the investment problem that they have at hand. So simple example, if you're running, you know, a very short term intraday cross security arbitrage model, well, then, you know, high, uh, you know, high uh, machine learning or artificial intelligence may be much more applicable to what you're doing than let's say you're running a slow alpha macro model where there's been seven cycles since 1945, right? Two totally different problems, two totally different sources of alpha. And so you've got to think about the tooling as the tools have to fit the, the question at hand. And I think too much people will immediately, um, uh, well, there, there, there's sort of this inclination that the technologists will bring the alpha when the reality is like what delivers generates alpha over time is in, is investment understanding and edge and you need that investment understanding and edge to figure out which tools are most applicable to the problem at hand to then design the investment strategies understand their limitations very important when you're doing that and produce something that is most likely to be uh, generating durable alpha over time and bob there is a question from our viewer justin um, he's asking you that, do you agree with Paul Marshall that hedge funds are actually paying silly money to portfolio managers? Are paid similarly? Uh, that hedge funds are actually paying silly money to portfolio managers. <laughs> silly money. Well, I, 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 yeah, I think, I mean, I do think, I think the overall fee structure of the overall business is just, it's, it, it doesn't make sense relative to the quality of the product that's being delivered. Right. I think that's the basic thing is that it's um, and that that is the thing. And, and, you know, the managers getting silly money, as it's described, <laughs> I think it's just a reflection of that imbalance. Right. And and that and I, I think we got to start. Like if you go back, let's let's say you go back 30 or 40 years ago. Right. What people did when they looked at stocks is they thought that they could pick stock pickers and big institutional allocators over time increasingly recognized that they could not pick stock pickers or the stock pickers were too expensive, right? And now, and you know, indexation and all that stuff has been a big, a big push when you're looking at sort of your passive 60-40 or beta allocation. And, um, and that's important because uh, I, I think what it highlights is that there's been a pretty significant shift in how people think about, let's say, the concepts of indexation relative to betas, but what people haven't, and diversification, diversified indexation relative to betas, but what they haven't done is brought the same lens or concepts to alphas, because all alphas are, are just another return stream. And so all the all the things that are applicable to alpha to betas, diversification benefit, cost reduction, indexation, all those concepts, those are totally applicable to alphas, right? But there's too much hope to find the right tail outlier 
which basically everyone's, you know, most people have given up with when it comes to stocks, too much hope in the hedge fund space to find the right tail outlier, rather than recognizing that instead of trying to search for the holy grail, the unicorn that's out there, if instead what I do is I just build a diversified portfolio of alpha managers at a much lower cost, my likely six, I'm likely to be much more successful than if I go chasing after someone that I hope to deliver that right-tailed outcome. Because they don't exist. They don't persistently exist in the market. And there is another question from our viewer, Lee, who is saying that what is the outlook for hedge funds with an emerging market perspective, especially China? Yeah, well, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, uh, the, the question is where do you find the the inconsistencies or the or the opportunities, right? Where 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 is there um, alpha by its nature is uh, is a is a game against other market participants, right? And so what you have to think about is you have to think about where are there places the, the best opportunities for the for hedge fund returns is where there are um, where there are folks in a market that are behaving in non economic ways for whatever reason, and in response to those not to that non-economic set of behaviors, um, they're essentially pricing assets in a way that's inconsistent with what the sort of true fundamental values are. And that's really where you see that opportunity. And so in a lot of cases, you can see that opportunity uh, exists in places where there is, um, where there's an imbalance and information asymmetry or behaviors or explicit behaviors by various players in a market uh, to not act in a way that's um, that's uh, that's alpha generating or, or, or price sensitive. And so emerging markets have a lot of those characteristics, right, in the sense that there are definitely, you know, folks who are in many of those markets, whether it's in the rates markets or in the equity markets that may not be um, as uh, as sophisticated as those picking over the micro opportunities in the U.S. stock market, um, and so that you know creates an opportunity uh, for alpha in those markets. But at the same time, you know, in order to be great at that, you have to make sure that you have edge relative to everyone else. And so, you know, as an example, if you look at something like the Chinese markets, you know, do you have edge? Who who actually controls the prices of those markets? Do you have edge relative to those who control the prices of those markets? I think those are deep fundamental questions that exist. Um, and, and the answer is I'm not really sure in the Chinese market. Uh, it, it's not it's not a place, frankly, that I've spent a lot of time developing uh, rich alpha understanding because uh, of the nature of the accessibility and the flexibility to be able to operate there. Um, but that's really what you have to you have to say is like, can you know, essentially can you be better than those who are controlling the market uh, in terms of how they're driving it? I, and I don't know. Um, there's lots of, and to be clear, there are lots of places where government intervention, and particularly coming from a bit of a currency background, actually, currencies have some of the biggest non-economic players in the market, right? Central bank intervention is literally an act of non-economic behavior, right? So it's not to say just because a government is involved in a market that there is an alpha. In some cases, if they behave non-economically, it actually generates more alpha availability rather than less. Well, thank you very much, Bob, uh, for joining us today. And thanks uh, for our audience for tuning in. Um, for our audience, please join us tomorrow again, uh, because uh, IBD's Elisa Koram and David Chung detail how investors can find 10 bagger stocks and how to determine which stocks are the ones that you deserve your patience.
thanks for listening, everyone, and uh, have a great day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.